if you would please turn with me to the Gospel of John. We are in John chapter 10. Pick it up in verse, verse 1, reading down to verse 21. John 10, verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him. For they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who was oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your good word. We thank you because you are the good shepherd of the sheep. And your sheep know who you are, and they listen to your voice, and they follow your voice. Father, so we pray that you would speak to us this morning. As your sheep, may we be drawn to the voice of the Son of God, so that we would listen, and that we may continue to follow his voice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Over and over again, we see that there is this these divided opinions about Jesus, about who he is and what he's for. Is he the Messiah or is he not? 
And now some are saying it's Jesus is oppressed by a demon. He's demon-possessed. And then others ask, well, how can a man who gave sight to the blind be demon-possessed? That doesn't make any sense. Even though Jesus continues to make it plain to the proud, to the people, who he is, there still seems to be divided opinions. And now here in chapter 10, Jesus gives us a, an illustration of who he is. But even in this illustration, he makes very plain about who he is. And so, there's two things that Jesus says about himself. And the first is that he is the door of the flock. He says, I say to you, he who does not enter by the sheep, the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. Then Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So a little bit of the uh, cultural context. During the nighttime, it was common for at least a few families or even just a couple families to bring all their sheep together and bring them in the, under the same pen and then uh, surrounded by a large enclosure. And then the families would hire a watchman, or in this case, in the passage, a gatekeeper, who would stand by the gate of the enclosure and watch out for any thieves. They would stay up during the night to make sure that there weren't any thieves who, were, who would try to attempt to come in and steal any of the sheep, which did happen, either because uh, another shepherd, perhaps out of jealousy of another's uh, uh, vast amount of resources in these shepherd or in their sheep, they might try to steal another person's sheep, because there was a way of there was a means of income, but others might just do it in spite to try to come in and try to steal the thief, uh, the sheep, or to kill the sheep for whatever reason, for whatever selfish reason. So the watchman would stand at the door and keep guard because at least at least then anybody who might be attempting to steal the sheep, they see somebody watching guard, they might think twice about it. Hopefully, now. Again, Jesus makes plain who he is. He, he makes plain who the, sheep, uh, who the sheep are, but also who is the shepherd and who is the door. Now, to better understand the passage, we need to remember what happened, uh, what preceded this passage. And we took a, la- a look at that last week with the healing of the man who was born blind. And it was towards the end of that passage that Jesus has some words to say about the religious teachers. He, call, he says that they are blind and that they have, and that they're filled with guilt. And so we know who the door of the flock is, and Jesus says plainly that I am the door of the flock. And we know who the good shepherd is, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. But then who are the thieves and the robbers that this, uh, this illustration is trying, to, is trying to communicate to us, is trying to tell us? And the answer is that the, the, the thieves are the religious teachers. I would encourage you when you have the time to read through Ezekiel chapter 34, it's not a long chapter, but there's no doubt that Jesus had this very passage in mind when he begins this illustration about a good shepherd and the sheep. Now, in Jesus' day, shepherds would have been looked at disdainfully. They were kind of seen as the, the lowest of the low class of society, which is kind of ironic because in the Old Testament, God considered the religious teachers of God's people as the shepherds of the sheep. And not only that, but God has 
some words of judgment towards the religious teachers or the so-called shepherds. In Ezekiel 34, it says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourself with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have sought, you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered, they wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Then Jesus continues that same judgment upon the teachers of God's people in Matthew 23. Verse 1, Jesus says to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe what they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides. So religious teachers are the ones who attempt to steal God's flock by climbing over the fence. They lay on them heavy burdens that are too difficult to bear. They shut in their faces the entrance to the kingdom of heaven, supposing themselves to be the gatekeepers. And shutting people out like they did in the story of the man born blind, casting him out of the synagogue. They've put themselves in this position of a judge, deciding who gets in and who stays out. But Jesus makes clear that it is not the religious teachers who are the door or the gatekeepers, but Jesus is the door. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I mean, that there is no other way to eternal life. There's no other way to greener pastures. It's not through the religious teachers. They're not the gatekeepers, but Jesus is the gatekeeper. He is the only way to the Father, to eternal life. There's not multiple ways, but just one way, and that is through Jesus. So Jesus is the door of the sheep. And as the shepherd of the sheep, he knows his own. With time and familiarity, the sheep come to distinguish the difference between their shepherd and the stranger, and that is by his voice. In the, sheep, in the sheepfold, right, because there's uh, several, probably even up to uh, at least a couple hundred sheep in the sheepfold, the sheep can come in and enter through the gate. He's not going to climb in through the fence because there's no need to because he owns some of the sheep. But he comes in and he calls out his own sheep. And the only ones who recognize his voice are the ones who actually belong to him. The one that he's known, the one that, the, the sheep that have come to know him, they are drawn to his voice. Anyone else's voice is, is considered a stranger and they will not go with that person because they don't know that person. 
So the shepherd will come in, and he will not call out all the sheep, but only call out his own. And in time through shared experiences and even through perhaps danger, the sheep become so acquainted with the shepherd that his voice is distinguishable from that of others. They come to recognize, to really know the voice of their shepherd. And they know him intimately and personally because the shepherd deals with them gently and tenderly and kindly, which is what God expected of the religious teachers as the shepherds. In Isaiah 40, looking forward to Jesus, it says, He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently leads those who are with young. Ezekiel 34, 31. The Lord says, you are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Lord. The sheep of the shepherd are the people of God who've been given access to these greener pastures. Through the door of the sheep, they found the promised land of rest and security and protection and peace. They've been given access because the shepherd knows them. He knows them personally, and he will keep them, and he will not lose a single one of those who are his, so that even if they wander from the path, get lost from the fold, the shepherd will go out and bring back the lost sheep and bring them back to the fold. And that point it will be reinforced a little bit later in the second point, or at the end of the second point. So first, Jesus is the door of the flock. There is no other way to these greener pastures. There's no other way to the entrance to the kingdom of heaven than through Jesus. And he gives access to those whom he knows. Not only that, but Jesus, secondly, is the shepherd of the flock. He's the good shepherd. It is to the good shepherd that it says in verse 3 that the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls out his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. There's three distinctions between the good shepherd and the thieves and the hireling. And the first is the familiar voice. Those who are the sheep of the shepherd follow his voice. And we've seen as we've been working through the gospel of John again and again, that those who do not belong to Jesus, those who do not belong to the good shepherd, do not follow his voice. So, for example, in John chapter 6, right after Jesus had said many words to his so-called followers, after feeding them with using a few loaves of bread and some fish, then it says in verse 60, after Jesus tells them who he is, that he's greater than Moses, that he is the bread of life, that he is the Son of God, the crowd, so these so-called disciples say, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? In other words, who can bear to listen to this? After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. I've said this before. How do you distinguish between a, a genuine disciple and a false disciple? A false disciple will always, will at some point stop following Jesus. But the true followers will follow until the very end of their life. Luke 6, 46. Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. And he talks about how 
that person is compared to uh, someone who builds their house on a solid foundation as opposed to somebody who builds their foundation on the sand and doesn't last. John 5.25 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. 1 John 2.5, whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. So you are his sheep if you respond to the voice of the good shepherd and in trust and in obedience. And then the second distinction is intimate knowledge. The good shepherd knows his own and he calls them out by name. He knows them by name and they follow him. So the good shepherd has a close relationship with the shepherd, with the sheep, unlike that of the hired hand. When a wolf appears, the hired hand is not going to stand by and defend the sheep because he doesn't care for the sheep. He's been hired to do one job, and that is to just keep a lookout for the night. But when a wolf comes and his life is in danger, well, he's going to flee because he doesn't care for the sheep. But Jesus is not like the hireling. He is the good shepherd that cares for the sheep. This is not the case with the religious teachers. Not only were their voices burdening with do this and do that, but they also didn't care for the people. They didn't care about the heart. They cared about themselves and their honor and their reputation. They cared more about external obedience rather than the matters of the heart. But the good shepherd cares about the heart. And then that leads to the last distinction between the good shepherd and the hireling or the thief, and that is sacrificial love. Jesus says in verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, and just as the Father knows me, I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. The good shepherd, that is Jesus, lays down his life for the sheep. He puts his life on the line because he cares for them. And he will give up his life in order to save them. Dying for a loved one is an honorable act, and it communicates a deep love and affection. But if the shepherd dies for the sheep, as wonderful of an act that might be, that still leaves the sheep without a shepherd. But Jesus says that not only is he the good shepherd, but he has the authority to lay down his life and also the authority to take it up again. Which means that not only does he die for his sheep, but he also rises again from the dead for his sheep. The good shepherd will not leave his sheep without a shepherd. But the one who gives them access to green pastures of eternal life, he is also the one who will abide with them forever. He is the good shepherd that Psalm 23 describes. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me besides green pastures. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear fear no evil, for you are with me. Jesus is that good shepherd, and he will forever be our shepherd. Told the very end, even 1 Peter 5 tells us that when the the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That is the promise to those who hold down to the end. The chief shepherd, the one who's been shepherding your soul through trials and tribulations and through suffering, through dark times, that that chief shepherd will one day appear and give you the unfading crown of glory. The voice of the good shepherd is a familiar voice. 
familiar to his sheep because, his, because the sheep know the shepherd. The shepherd knows them, and he will give up his life to save them. And that leads me to say one last thing about this sacrificial love. Again, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. When we think about the gospel, we need to ask ourselves two questions. The first, what did the death of Christ accomplish? And then number two, for whom did Christ die? What did the death of Christ accomplish? It secured for us salvation and reconciliation with God by Jesus Christ paying the penalty for our sins. The death of Christ paid for our transgressions against God, and he brought us to a place of peace with God, as it tells us in Isaiah 53. The death of Christ made us righteous before God and redeemed us from the curse of the law, which results in death and the punishment of God, according to Romans chapter 3. The death of Christ made us alive when we were once dead in trespasses and in our sins. And we have been brought near to God, according to Ephesians chapter 2. That's what the death of Christ accomplishes for us. And second, for whom did Christ die? According to our passage here in John 10, it says that Jesus lays down his life for his sheep. That Jesus died for his people. Matthew 121 tells us that Jesus came to seek to save his people from their sins. But we also read in John 3.16, familiar passage, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. 1 John also tells us that Jesus is the propitiation for not only our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. So sometimes it appears that Jesus died for a specific particular people, and other times it seems like the passage tells us that Jesus died for the whole world without exception. So which is it? Now, time doesn't allow me to go into great detail on this matter, but I would argue strenuously that Jesus died for a particular people, for his people, and not every single person without exception. John 6 tells us that the Father has given to Jesus a people, that those are his people, and that Jesus will not lose a single one of his people. And here in John 10, remember the sheepfold would have had Sheep belonging to several, or at least a few different shepherds. But the shepherd comes and he only calls out his own. And it's only his own that he's willing to put his life on the line for, not somebody else's sheep. I'm thinking about, say, daycare, right? Say I, I, my kids are in daycare, and then daycare's a lot of kids. And I come to pick up my kids, and I call out to them, who are the ones who are going to respond? Right, it's not the kids that don't belong to me. Only my kids will turn around and come and, and see me and call out to dad, and they will come and follow. At least hopefully, unless they've been disobedient. <laughs> but there's only two that will recognize my voice, and that's only my two children, my two girls. I'm not going to attempt to try to call out all the other children. One, because I don't want all that many children following me. <laughs> but also because they're not going to listen. They don't know me. I'm not their father. They're not my children. I don't have this intimate personal relationship with them. They don't recognize my voice. To them, I'm just a stranger. Right? I might be a really good person. I think I'm a really good person. But it doesn't matter to them because they don't know me. They're not going to follow my voice. Only my children will respond to my voice. And how much do I love my children? I'm willing to lay my life down for them. 
It's not that all these other kids are not worth dying for. They certainly are, but I'm going to put my life on the line for my own children because I know them and they know me. And I would argue that they've been given to me because God is the one who is the author of all life. So in other words, I don't believe that the scriptures teach that there's not this universal redemption. If Jesus died for all people without exception, then every single person without exception would be saved regardless of how one, be- how one lives their life, regardless of one believes in Jesus or not. I don't think the scriptures teach that at all. And that would only cheapen and devalue the gospel and the death of Christ. But some would argue, well, Jesus died for every single person without exception, but it is only effective if the person places their faith upon Jesus. Right? That's a much better position than universalism, that every single person is saved without exception. But I would still argue that it doesn't give the gospel the greatest value because if Christ died for all people and not everybody is saved, then what would that mean for the person who doesn't believe in Jesus is not saved? That would mean that the death of Christ is ineffective for the person who doesn't believe in Jesus. That would mean that the death of Christ accomplished nothing for the person who is an unbeliever and remains an unbeliever for the rest of their life. Jai Packer once wrote, Christ did not win a hypothetical salvation for hypothetical believers, a mere possibility of salvation for any who might possibly believe, but a real salvation for his own chosen people. Jesus died for his people, for his sheep that belong to his flock. But then what do you do with texts like John 3, 16, for God so loved the world and First John 2, 2, that tells us that Jesus is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. And there are others like it in the New Testament, and each one has to be interpreted in its own context. But for now, what I'll say is that with regards to John 3, 16, the world in the gospel of John is never a good thing. It's always, it's always meant to communicate something bad, something terrible, something filled with darkness, something that is evil. And so when it says in John 3.16 that God so loved the world, it's intended to communicate how, how, how scandalous and how shocking is the love of God that he would send his son to die for individuals who had no love for God at all. And then with 1 John 2.2, again, context is important because in that letter, the author addresses the situation that the churches are going through where there are people who have left the church because they have believed that they have come to this state of sinless perfection, that they can no longer sin, which isn't true according to the scriptures. And they believe themselves to be this elite class of Christians, that this, part, this, this special group. And in response, the author says that anyone who says, I have no, has, who says that they have no sin deceives himself and the truth is not in him. And hence why he also says that Jesus is the propitiation for the world not meaning that everyone without exception, but everyone without distinction, that Jesus did not die for one particular group, for one particular race, for one particular language, one particular country, but Jesus' death accomplished salvation for people of every tribe, nation, and tongue. So then, what do we do with that? How do we respond? How should we respond? And that leads me to one final point. And that's that the shepherd will draw his sheep. 
Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. To me, magnets, magnets are a really interesting and fascinating thing. They had these magnetic properties that attract strong metals like iron to itself. And they can be really small like what you find on a toy, uh, a toy train, or they can be really large and powerful like you, like you see in, in junkyards that lift up uh, vehicles. Right? The magnetic field, it's not something that we can see with our eyes, but we know that it's working because it attracts metal to itself. Jesus' mission is to seek and to save the lost. And among the Israelites, there are a particular people that Jesus considers his sheep. But outside of Israel, that is including Gentiles, there are many sheep that are lost that must be included as part of this fold. Ezekiel 34.11 says, the Lord God, says, for that says the Lord God, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. As the shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. In verse 16, I will seek the lost, I will bring back the straight, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. In verse 23, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, or also known as Jesus, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. Those who have been scattered across the world will be drawn to the voice of the Lord. It is the magnetic voice of the Lord that will draw his people to himself. So from the passage, we can have assurance that wherever his church is, that wherever the gospel is proclaimed, wherever his witnesses are, that Jesus' sheep, his lost sheep, will be drawn to the voice of the Lord and that they will be saved. Like a magnet, like a metal is, is drawn to magnet. Particular atonement, or that is that Christ died for his people only, does not or should not impede or hinder our evangelism, but I think it actually fuels our evangelism. Romans 10 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That means that even though the Lord already knows who are his and sent his son to die for those who are his, people will not be saved apart from the preaching of the gospel. They must hear the gospel and be saved in order to be drawn to the Lord. And so that means that wherever we are, that we must preach the gospel. Because his sheep, well, we don't, it's not our job to know who are his and who are not. Our job is to preach the gospel because his lost sheep might be in our own midst. It might be in our, our workplace. It might be in our neighborhoods. And even in, hopefully and prayerfully, within our own family. His lost sheep are out there, and the Lord will draw them to himself And that comes through the preaching of the gospel. And because Jesus says that he will not lose a single one of those who are his, we can rest assured that his elect will be drawn and that they will be saved. And so 
What this means is that there's success in the mission. That it's not up to man to decide for himself, but it's up to the God who elects individuals to come to Jesus Christ. That his sheep will be drawn if we just continue to preach the gospel. So Kaylee and my wife had an uncle who passed away from a terminal illness. It was just weeks before his passing, that he trusted in Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, and he showed these genuine signs of repentance and faith in the gospel. It shows, it's a reminder to me, that the Lord is never too late in saving his people. Even if it's just moments from death, the Lord will certainly save his people. He will. So you can rest assured that Jesus will save his people. And in the meantime, we continue to preach the gospel. We continue to pray and beg and plead the Lord that he would save those in our midst. Co-workers, friends, neighbors, siblings, parents. We pray and we beg the Lord to save them. And we continue to preach the gospel as we have opportunity. Because those two things work together. It's not one or the other. God chooses and we preach the gospel so that people would be saved. And so if sinners be lost, let it not be because we never asked. Or let it not be because we stopped asking and praying and pleading for their salvation. The book of James says you, ask, you receive not because you ask not. But pray and beg and plead before the Lord. Now what else does this do for us? Well, we should not be like the people that John is referring to in his letter in 1 John. Who, these Christians who have parted from the church and believe themselves to be an elite class of Christians, right? This is, not a point, a, this is not a point of pride, but this is a point of humility. Because Christ purchased an effective salvation for you means that in God's wisdom, he had decided that you should be spared of his judgment. And that should fill your heart with gratitude. And does that change our evangelism? And I don't think it does. It just shouldn't anyway. If you have yet to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you have yet to entrust the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, then today is the day of salvation. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that he died for your sins. How do you know that you have that you are chosen. How do you know that Jesus Christ died for your sin? If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that he died for your sins, and that you live your life in repentance and growing in the fruits of the Spirit and making your aim to live according to what the Lord prescribes in the New Testament, that you can rest assured that you are his. And this should also drive us into a greater fellowship and intimacy with the Lord. I think of Charles Wesley's hymn that goes, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused this pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die 
for me. Some of you this morning just need to let that sink in. That Jesus Christ died for you. He died on the cross for you. We have a tendency to live by our feelings. We feel like this, we feel like that, this happened, so I feel like this. I feel like this person communicated like this in this way. I feel like this person meant this, or I feel like the Lord is distancing himself from me, or I feel like the Lord is doing this to me and that. And there might be some measure of truth to those feelings. But it's so easy to just live our lives by the ebbs and flows of every day. Instead, we need to ground ourselves in what the Word says, in truth. And the Word tells you, no matter how you feel, despite how you feel, the honest truth is that Jesus Christ died for you. That communicates deep love, deep affection, that the Lord knows who you are. He knows you. So no matter how you're feeling, and they might be legitimate feelings, remember the truth of the word. Jesus died personally for you. He died for you. To spare you, to give you eternal life, to spend eternity with God, to know God for all of eternity, because he loves you. Lord Jesus loves you. Sometimes it doesn't feel that way. You need to stop living by your feelings. Live according to what the word says. The Lord Jesus loves you. The Lord Jesus died for you. Let me pray. Jesus, we cannot fathom this incredible love that you have for your people. It is not because of anything that we have done. It is not because of any works done in righteousness. It is all because of your great mercy. We thank you, Lord, for giving us this salvation. We thank you for dying for us, for drawing us to the Son by the hearing of the gospel. Father, I pray that you would help us to remember that, that Jesus died for us. May we say, that we may proclaim it loudly and boldly, that Jesus died for me. We thank you, Jesus. We pray that that truth would penetrate into our hearts and drive us into greater fellowship and greater intimacy with you. Thank you, Father. We pray that through your spirit that you would remind us of that truth when we need it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.